I try to take emotion out of it and just say, focusing on this, these younger generations, Gen Zers, want to work for companies that prioritize these things. If you're trying to hire this that population, you have to focus on that, right? Welcome to Voices of Inclusion, brought to you by Matheson, your all-in-one DEI platform. Before we get into the episode, don't forget to comment, like, and subscribe. Also, follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at matheson.io. Let's get back to the episode. <laughs> so, Dr. James, I know you as an incredible DEI expert and someone who's just incredible, just a powerhouse. Thank you. I love your TED uh, Talks, um, but for people that don't know you didn't, don't know you yet could you let us know a little bit about what you do yeah sure so and i i don't like to call myself an expert because <laughs> i feel like we're all kind of experts in our own experiences so i would i like to call myself a, a consultant or a dei advocate but for folks that are not really familiar with me i work with organizations and institutions to help them identify barriers that the most marginalized employees experience, and then I help them also remove those barriers, right? So figuring out why is it that we don't have the same rates of employees getting hired into the organization and then also advancing in the organization. So really diagnosing what your racial equity issues are. I also do a lot of education where I come in and I do, um, I facilitate a conversation on racial equity or a specific topic around maybe supporting black employees or supporting black women in your workplace. Um, so I do a lot of talks on that. So I think at heart, I'm an educator. I also do a lot of writing. Like I, I say, if racism wasn't a thing, I would just be writing. Like I love to write. I would do creative writing. And so I think writing is my first love, but I do a lot of writing around racial equity and racial equity specifically in the workplace. Yeah, I know we're going to get into a few different topics today, but um, when we talk about racial equity, I feel like it's a topic that seems um, a little bit hard to explain for some mm -hmm. people. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, I always say, like, you know, there's been a really interesting conversation on LinkedIn happening. I'm on LinkedIn a lot, and I try to, like, keep my ear to the streets and, like, hear what, what people are saying on LinkedIn. And there's been this really sort of interesting conversation taking place, Robert, where people are debating whether diversity, equity, and inclusion focuses too much on race. And I've seen this sort of argument or this idea being pushed on, on LinkedIn. And so I really come in and I kind of say, who are the most marginalized? And oftentimes it's black people, right? In our workplaces in the US and in Western societies, right? And a lot of the focus hasn't been put on what black employees need to grow and to thrive and to advance in the workplace. So a lot of the work that I do focuses specifically on black employees, how to make sure that you're, you have an inclusive sort of pipeline so that black employees are even attracted to the organization. And then I think the harder part is like once they're there, what are you actually doing to make sure that they're given the tools that they need to thrive? So when I work with companies, one thing that I hear a lot from black employees is they're like, I don't feel like I'm, you know, I feel like I'm here, but I haven't been given the tools I need to advance or to get promoted, or I feel like 
everyone always says they don't feel like they're being paid fairly. So a lot of the work that I do is like diagnosing. I kind of feel like I'm like a workplace doctor where I go in and like figure out who, what, what are the issues that people are experiencing? What are the patterns that are, that I'm seeing? And then what are the specific prescriptions that I would recommend as far as like how to create a better workplace for the most marginalized? Because when you look in every community, when you look at the uh, dis disabled community, when you look at the LGBTQIA plus community, when you look at every community, black people within those communities experience the most severe forms of harm. And so that's why I really try to center black employees in the work that I do and other employees from racially marginalized backgrounds, because it's such an important conversation. And until the last few years, we haven't really focused specifically on that population. Okay, so when it comes to the equitable piece, I know a lot of people feel like they're not being paid fairly. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to those questions or even accusations to companies, mm -hmm. how do you even address that with the company and how do you level set with the employee to say, okay, this is this is what you're worth, but maybe mm -hmm. to tell the company, hey, this person should be getting paid a lot more. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a few different arguments. There. Yeah, there's such a... This episode was brought to you by you or your company. Well, it could be. Feel free to reach out to me at robert.woods at matheson.io for an ad placement right here. It could be right here, like right here. Okay, let's get back to the episode. Well, I'll say when I, I worked in academia for seven years, I was underpaid, right? I was working at a university, shall remain nameless, in Connecticut, and I found out that I was actually getting paid like 30 or 40,000 less than all of the other professors in the business department. And what's interesting is like in academia, they really value like PhDs, right? So I have a PhD. A lot of the business faculty, they're CPAs, they're JDs. They don't necessarily have like a doctorate degree. I have a doctorate degree and I was kind of being like touted as the DEI person in the university. And yet I was being severely underpaid. And for me, what a lot of employees go through is there isn't a lot of clarity regarding the pay structure. You know, when I when I emailed HR and I said, why am I being like, why am I not in my pay grade? Right. And she, essentially the head of HR just said, our goal is to get every faculty member to their pay grade by 2023. Right. And this was when I saw that I was being underpaid, it was 2021. And I was like, OK, but that's not answering my question of why I'm not right, because based on my years of service, my doctorate, all of these other factors, I should be getting at least like 112000 starting, right? And I was making $85,000. So I was like, I'm, and all of the other faculty members, I know they're getting at least one thirty, right? So that was, for me, I think like an eye-opener where I was like, I know what the employees that I work with, the when I consult with companies, I know what these employees are going through because they're like, I there's no clarity around why I'm getting paid what I'm getting paid. So... I'm a big advocate of salary transparency. I know a lot of companies, there's some research that says like, Robert, if I know you and I are in the same position and you're making more than me, that could cause conflict between the employees. But here in New York City, there's a new salary transparency law where now you have to display the salary range on the job ad. So I think that just opening up conversations about salary is so important and I think on a company side, like doing pay audits 
is important to assess like maybe someone has been at the company for so long and no one really assessed their pay and they're getting severely underpaid compared to new people that are coming in. So I think organizations should be doing pay audits. But then I think on the employee side, really like not being afraid to say, hey, I found out that Robert is getting 30 or $40,000 more than me, why, right? What is, what is, and I think that that is an important conversation that employees have to sort of have. One of my close friends, what she did when she was applying for a university role is she laid out why she deserved to get paid more. She was coming from Florida and she said, the cost of living is higher. The, all of these things, this is what I'm bringing. This is the value that I bring. And that's why I think LinkedIn is so important because I think you can really showcase like all of the things that you're bringing to the table on a platform like LinkedIn. But I think really, if you do find out that there's a discrepancy inquiring about why, because you know, that's like the worst thing when you're in a company and you find out you're being underpaid. I don't wanna be an employer or a manager and there's a discrepancy between what two people doing the same thing are getting paid. So I think employees feeling empowered to have that conversation, or sometimes unfortunately they say that the best way to you know, get more money is to leave and go somewhere else. But before it gets to that point, I think really inquiring about what what where this what the source of the discrepancy is like why am I getting thirty or forty thousand under what my peers are getting is an important question. Yeah, and it seems like um, you being a third party consultant, mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like a lot of times that they're looking for that uh, that that voice that's not the employer, not the employer to mm-hmm. say, hey, this is right and this is wrong. Yeah. Um, that's really cool. Yeah. That seems like a really enriching part of what you do. Yeah, yeah. I I love being an external person because I felt like at as a you know I had I have banking experience, so I worked in banking when I was in college, and then I worked as a professor for seven years, and it's really hard to change an environment that you're part of when you're trying to change the people that sign your checks. It's very difficult. So I think as an external person. I have the ability to like provide an outside perspective, but it's so interesting, Robert, because when I come into these companies and I I talk with the employee resource groups and the employees, the junior employees, I kind of ask them what their specific like experiences are. A lot of times when I make suggestions to leaders, employees are like, we've been telling them this for the last X, Y, Z amount of time. Maybe they'll hear it differently because it's coming from you, but we've been telling them this. So it, it, I feel happy that I can work on behalf of employees because a lot of employees don't trust their human resource department. They feel like HR is working on behalf of the employers and not the employee. So I think having that external resource is so important. And at least you have someone that employees can go to when they have issues. Yeah, I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. And I know DEI is really, <sighs> DEI has been here, I think, for as long as corporate America has, but mm-hmm. it seems like DEI is popular now, um, but it can be performative uh, when mm-hmm. it comes to the, the policies, especially the inclusive policies. Um, and we know that no organization is perfect, but um, how do we get away from companies just claiming to be inclusive and not necessarily having their feet held to the fire when it comes to basically walking the wall. Yeah, I what I love is social media. I think social media has empowered the employee 
to like 30 years ago, we weren't able to put workplaces on blast who don't treat people fairly, right? 30 years ago, we weren't able to like talk about, right, the inequitable hiring practices for NFL coaches, for example, right? 30 years ago, we didn't have the tools that we have now to amplify these issues. So I think that like, it's, I'll, you know, I think one of the most important things, if you want to really create an environment where everyone is able to thrive is accountability. And so I think for a lot of companies and organizations that is lacking. And, you know, recently there was this issue that came up with like a women's membership group where, you know, they were created to help women thrive, help women specifically in leadership positions. And what ended up happening is that a lot of the non-white women said that they didn't experience or didn't feel like the group was equitable for them. They didn't feel like the group was designed with them in mind. And I think a lot of our organizations weren't created specifically with the most marginalized populations in mind. So I think that there has to be some sort of accountability, right? It's good to do workshops and trainings and have affinity groups and employee resource groups and have all of these cultural celebrations. But like beyond that, if there's no accountability for the people that are creating, specifically leaders, like in the environments that they're creating, I don't think any equity will be possible. And I think that that's one of the problems where people, there's a lack of accountability where people can do and say things where there can be like inequities as far as like promotion, right? One of my clients, um, I'm doing work with a client and one of the employees was telling me that they didn't receive a raise, right? They didn't receive a raise. They got promoted, but they, it was supposed to come with a raise. When they reached out to their manager, their manager was like, well, I it's out of my hands now. And it's like, so what, like, what are you supposed to do if you feel like there was some sort of inequity regarding why you didn't receive the raise? There's managers don't have to be accountable. Why is my performance evaluated as an employee, but you as my leader, I, I don't have the ability to evaluate you. So one of the things I always suggest for workplaces is having structures in place so you can evaluate leaders, right? Or your directors or whoever you directly report to, because that's an important piece of accountability, where if I know that I'm gonna be evaluated, I'm gonna be really mindful of the environment that I'm creating, right? When I was in academia, I knew at the end of the semester, my students were gonna evaluate me. And I knew that, you know, there's a correlation between when a student gets a bad grade and the evaluation that they give you. So I was always mindful and I knew what, what was gonna be asked on the evaluation. So even that helped to empower me and made, made me make sure that I was, you know, kind of trying to cater my courses to student needs. In the middle of the semester, they would do like a, a mid-semester review, right, where students could, can evaluate you. And that kind of helps you. So I think having something where you're receiving feedback from employees is a huge part of accountability. And I think that a lot of the reasons why company DEI measures are performative is because there's no sort of like accountability measures. Wow, yeah, that's a lot. And I think yeah. when it comes to accountability, it's like a lot of it has to do with the truth. Mm -hmm. Truth hurts. <laughs> yeah, leaders don't like to feel that pain. Exactly. Like I, if I'm a leader, I'm like I don't want my performance evaluated. That's but I, I think like we have to get more comfortable with feedback. That's what's going to help us get better. 
And I think sometimes managers, leaders don't always have like feel comfortable giving um, giving feedback. Mm-hmm. Right. I had an issue with a client where a black a white director was in charge of a uh, black manager, and she had in the year plus she was working with this um, manager, she had never given her feedback. And when I spoke with her, the white director was kind of like nervous about giving this particular black manager feedback because she's very outspoken. And so I think that there was this perception that like, oh, if I give her feedback that's constructive or that's perceived as negative, she's going to like, it's just not going to be a good like situation. So I think that that is really what like made her eventually end up leaving. So I think managers also have to be equipped with the tools to, to give that feedback. The manager or the, the, or the director? The, I think the, the director, excuse me, wow. the director has to be, you know, like you have to really be able to provide the employees that you lead with feedback. You can't be guiding them and, and you know, cause I think if an employee isn't performing well, I personally think that a lot of times they're not receiving the guidance that they need, right? You can't provide me with a performance evaluation without providing me with clear steps as to how I can improve my performance. And sometimes it's like, this is how you're doing. I'm a stressed out leader. I don't have time to provide detailed feedback. So here's your evaluation, right? And there's no, not a lot of thought into, that goes into how I can help you develop and improve this performance. It's just, you're in the top or you're in the bottom 10%, you need to do better, right? So I think that equipping managers with the tools to provide that feedback, but also making sure managers and leaders are receiving some sort of evaluation so that there can be like that accountability. True, yeah. To go back on the thing you said about um, social media, I think we all have these little televisions in our pockets. Yeah. So like, and nobody wants to be canceled. And I Mm -hmm. think that, brings along this additional element of um, maybe fear. Mm-hmm. Um, but to switch it up just a little bit, I mm-hmm. wanted to hear a little bit about uh, your story um, and how you started writing for Forbes. Yeah, yeah, that's a great uh, question. So it was actually really interesting because it wasn't like a, a more orthodox like path where I applied for Forbes, uh, like to be a contributor and they're like, yeah, you got it. It was actually like, I just graduated in 2017, so I was like, okay, I have a PhD now. I knew I wanted to work in DEI, but all of my experience was banking and teaching. So I was like, oh, no one wants to really hire me in a corporate environment to do DEI. It was actually a blessing because I'm not a corporate person. I don't think that would have worked out for me and my personality. So it it actually worked out. but. I, so I was doing a speaking engagement, which I found on LinkedIn. I was like looking for any sort of opportunity to talk about DEI. I was scrolling on LinkedIn and I saw someone post that, um, and I'm forgetting the name, but it was, it was such a serendipitous opportunity that they, uh, the conference was looking for speakers. So I filled out uh, the website form to be a speaker and they were like, we, we can't accommodate you as a speaker, but we do want you on a panel with other DEI folks. So I was super excited. And actually Adam Grant was like um, their keynote speaker and they were giving out Adam Grant's books. And I was like, oh, you know, what if Adam Grant shows up? I was like, oh, I hope he shows up to my talk. He didn't. But um, so we, after the, the panel took place, you know, we had a conversation about DEI in the workplace. 
it was like food, you know, we got to mix and mingle. And the next day or sometime that week, I received an email from an editor at Forbes. And she said, hey, I'm an editor um, in the career section at Forbes. I was present in the audience when you gave your, when you were part of the panel, do you do any writing? I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I love to write. Yes. Do you write? Do I write? Yes. But the only piece of writing I actually had besides my dissertation was uh, an article I wrote on LinkedIn about you know, DEI in the workplace. And I wrote that article in maybe 2017, or no, it was, excuse me, it was 2018 um, that I wrote it. And so she, I sent her that and she was like, oh, looks good. And so that's how I became a writer for Forbes. So it was like very sort of unorthodox. So when people ask me like, how do I, I'm like, oh, I, it's hard for me to give advice from the traditional route, but I think people just showing up as who you are People will take notice and also not being afraid to share what it is that you're doing. A lot of my friends, they're like, I'm an introvert. I don't really want to like be up there on on LinkedIn posting pictures of myself or doing this or doing that. And I'm like, do whatever feels comfortable, but just show up, right? If you like to write, write articles, right? If you like to do videos to talk about topics or you're a speaker, do videos where you're talking about you don't even have to do videos of yourself you can kind of get creative and do like you know a video about an article where you're you know posting the video and kind of doing a voiceover and talking about your opinions so there's like ways to make it work for you but i think a, a big part of that is just showing up yeah showing up on social media is incredibly hard especially i mean i think when you kind of um categorize yourself as an introvert you're mm -hmm. like in this box like mm -hmm. <laughs> it's okay that's why I'm home tonight you know? yeah yeah <laughs> but, exactly you know I, I'm an introvert and I've been making content well that's um, funny because you do this podcast so yeah and I feel like it's an exercise but it's you know it's kind of it kind of forces you to you know um to grow a little bit more mm -hmm. um and I think that's cool mm -hmm. but uh, LinkedIn is one of those things it's, when you talk about serendipity, mm -hmm. it just creates so many opportunities mm -hmm. for serendipity. You just, that LinkedIn algorithm, I don't yeah. know. What's yeah, the for. algorithm is just like, I'm biased. I, I <laughs> LinkedIn is my favorite social media yeah. platform because I feel like Instagram, your audience doesn't see a lot of your content and it's harder for people to find. I, I just, unless you go to your explore page on Instagram, you're not seeing content from people you don't really know, but LinkedIn their algorithm, I see people constantly that I'm not necessarily connected with, and it helps you, like, discover new people. Right. And your, your top voice on there. I was like, that's Yeah, amazing. that was, like, I don't even know. And I think just showing up, right? I think just showing up and being talking about what you're passionate about and just, like, being unapologetic about it and themselves in the workplace. Um, or, you know, engage in self-promotion. They're actually seen more negatively. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Yeah, so... Okay. Okay. Okay, so LinkedIn is so powerful, and I was going to just talk about briefly. There was a study that came out um, in 2022 where researchers found that specifically black employees, when they self-promote in the workplace, so when you talk about your accolades and, and your accomplishments, to your managers and to your coworkers. I think it was specifically they looked at managers, but you're seen as less favorable as a black employee compared to Asian employees, compared to white employees, compared to other racial and ethnic groups. So when you engage in self-promotion, 
like career coaches tell you, you need to promote yourself, you need to talk about, you need to brag. That actually doesn't work for black employees. So I think LinkedIn is really powerful in that it kind of lets you brag, but it's like LinkedIn. So you're able to like, you know, because I think me, I've been conditioned to like, I'm not a person that like talks a lot about myself and the things that I do. And people have commented on that and said, oh, why didn't you mention that you're doing this and you're doing that? I'm like, mm, I'm not really like a bragger in person. When I meet people, I'm not like, what do you do? What, like, I've, I'm not that type of person. But LinkedIn gives me an opportunity to be like, I just said this, or this is something really exciting. So I think black employees specifically should take advantage of, of LinkedIn. But I just think in general is such a great platform. I'm biased, but I think it's a great uh, platform for visibility to kind of share what you do with the world. I've seen photographers on it, right? It's not like you don't have to be corporate to be on it because I think there's a perception. I've seen fitness trainers on there. I've seen photographers. I've seen all kinds of just people in different spaces on the platform. So I think if there's anything audience members can take away, it's definitely like utilizing that platform in whatever ways you you can yeah yeah that's so true um and i can only speak to this a little bit so uh i would essentially post things about mindset and like um you know basically growth mindset content mm -hmm. but i was recruiting i was a recruiter mm -hmm. and so eventually people would still reach out to me and say hey robert like what you posted could mm -hmm. you help me with these roles mm -hmm. um and i think that's another example yeah like for a recruiter yeah exactly like recruiters should definitely be on there but i i don't think you can like just post hey job opening yeah right yeah. i think like there's creative ways to do it and there's one um person i follow on linkedin she is i think she's talent acquisition jelani weaver i believe is her her name jelani weaver she's great her content is really interesting because i think she does talent acquisition or she helps people find jobs essentially right i don't know if her title it might be because I know her little tagline was like your recruiter friend. So she might be recruiting slash talent acquisition, but she utilizes it really well and I think really effectively. And so I think there's so many ways. I don't think because you're not maybe in a traditional corporate role. I think even as a musician, I think you could use the platform in different ways. And I think, again, I'm biased, but I think it's better in many ways than like a an Instagram because only a portion of your your people are seeing your content, but on LinkedIn, you have the opportunity to reach many new audiences. True, true. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I wouldn't say turmoil, but a lot of challenges uh, that are happening right now in DEI departments because they're losing their heads of DEI. Mm -hmm. um, so if you were head of DEI or, or head of people right now um, at a company, what would your employee retention strategy be? Mm -hmm. That's such a great question, and I, I don't want to give the cop-out answer, but it's a little bit of a, like, it depends, right? Yeah. I would always say, what are your employees saying, right? Because I don't think leaders, when leaders bring me in to work with their companies, they tell me what their issues are. Then when I speak to employees, it's it's kind of different, right? They're, they're like, oh, we have this issue with this and this, and I think this might be a problem. When I speak with the employees, especially those from marginalized backgrounds they're like no actually these are the issues right and so i think that it's are you centering the voices of the most marginalized and what do they need right and how can you accommodate those specific needs i think should be a part of it what are employees saying when they leave the organization 
right? I think it's difficult because if you're in this space where you have to do layoffs because you, you know, you're, the money isn't, you're not bringing in as much, so you have to do, I think there's alternatives to layoffs. I would say layoffs hopefully would be a final, um, like a final result, right? But I think like there's other things that could be done, other ways that you could cut costs depending on the, the nature of the business where you wouldn't have to sacrifice DEI. Because I think if we're speaking purely from a financial standpoint, everyone knows like McKinsey published that 2015 study, Why Diversity Matters, where they found that racial and ethnic diversity specifically, you know, fo uh, companies that had uh, more diversity and more diverse boards racially and ethnically made more money, right? So there's just correlation between the racial and ethnic diversity in your profit. So if you're cutting or if you're doing layoffs or you don't have, you're cutting your DEI efforts, you're not going to be getting that racial diversity. You're not going to be expending as much money, right, to make sure that your pipeline, you're, you're posting in places that maybe your ideal candidates might not see because I think that's an important part of it for small companies. If you're a small company, you're one of my clients, their ideal um, their ideal customer is like a millennial white woman. And their issue was they would post their jobs on LinkedIn. And they said on LinkedIn and on their website, but their website, only people that know them, I was not familiar with them until I started working with them. And I'm like, you're not posting in places where people from other racial and ethnic backgrounds would see it. I don't know, I'm not going on your website. I'm not on your LinkedIn. So you should be posting the job openings in other places or reaching out to someone like me and saying, hey, we have an open role. Can you advertise this with your audience? But if you're cutting your DEI budget, you're not gonna be doing all of those things. So I think you're, you're what is the saying? You're cutting your nose to spite your face. You're like hurting, you're only hurting yourself in the end. As a company, it's a short-term solution where you might be bleeding and it's like stopping the bleeding, but I feel like it's gonna, the wound is still there, right? I think it's just stopping the bleeding for the moment, right? But the problem will still be there. So I think that there should be, I would look into other ways you could save costs rather than cutting your specifically your DEI budget or your DEI person, because I think that'll just set you back as a company. That makes a lot of sense. And you know, when we think about um, heads of people, people leaders in general, they always, I mean, they have a really tough position, mm -hmm. um, especially when it comes to budgets, because mm -hmm. you know you always have to kind of roll every single idea or thought up, up to the CFO's office. Mm -hmm. um, for the people that are trying to secure DEI budgets, what would you say to them and, and how can they do that? Mm -hmm. it's, it's tough because I think it's a struggle. What I've seen in the last three years is a decline in companies being willing to invest, yeah. right? So when they reach out and say, hey, we want to do a workshop or we want to bring you in as a consultant, I've seen you know companies push back a little bit when you share, okay, these are my rates, this is what I charge. You know, it, so I think it... I don't want to say it depends, but it almost kind of like, it depends, right? I think leaders have to understand, I hate that ROI of DEI conversation, but I think leaders have to understand how is this going to benefit the organization? And I think there's still a lack of understanding. A lot of people may feel like I'm not included in the DEI conversation because I'm not a person of color, right? I'm not. So I think there's some resistance, but 
like I t I try to take emotion out of it and just say, focusing on this, these younger generations, Gen Zers, want to work for companies that prioritize these things. If you're trying to hire this that population, you have to focus on that, right? The optics matter to that generation and to millennials. And so I think that as the country and as a world grows more diverse racially and ethnically, it's important to prioritize these things. So I think that a failure, I just say it simply like a failure to prioritize these things means that your company's not going to be sustainable. If you're like, well, we're not going to focus on this, then you're going to lose competition. You're going to lose out to your competitors and people will want to go over there, right? If they find out you as a company are not prioritizing these things, there's so many other options. I'm quick to boycott a company. If I hear something happens, like I remember in 2012 when the um, CEO of Chick-fil-A made those statements, right? The, the anti-LGBTQIA plus statements. And I was like, mm, I don't really like knowing that my money is going to support these things, right? And I was like, I'm gonna uh, I'll boycott them. This was in 2012 and I was living in Louisiana and there's tons of Chick-fil-A's in, in the South. In New York, I know that there's been more lately, right? And there's one franchise I believe that's black owned here in the city, but I still don't really like patronize um, Chick-fil-A because I think about that, right? It's been 12 years, uh, 11 years, and I'm still like, mm. so I think that like how you treat employees has a lasting effect. And especially if you end up going viral for treating employees poorly, it could completely ruin your reputation as a company and you might not be able to come back from it. I think Papa John's is a really good example. And I think that they've tried to come back from it. I don't know how well they have, right? But it's really difficult to like separate and divorce stuff that the CEO or the former CEO has said, right? So I think that if you don't prioritize those things, you're not gonna be sustainable in the future. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, you know, one more thing just before we yeah. get you out of here. Um, I did have a question around wellness and just mental health in general. Um, you know, since you are like a, a powerful woman, someone that basically makes a lot of transitions throughout the week. You might be in L.A. this week. <laughs> you might be in Chicago next week. And you're constantly moving. Um, how do you manage your wellness and like take care of yourself? And how do you advise other people to do the same? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, I would say... I'm a big gym advocate. I love to work out. It really helps me. And also I love to sleep and I try to track my sleep. I have a device that tracks my sleep, but I um, definitely like exercise has helped me immensely. And I know for people um, navigating different like mental health, ha who have different mental health experiences, it can help with depression, anxiety, all kinds of different um, issues you may be experiencing. But just for me, like if I have a day where I just feel like blah, I go to the gym and I feel better, right? And also it helps me sleep better, right? Because it tires your body out and then it makes, unless you go right before you go to sleep, it tires your body out and then you end up sleeping better and having more deep sleep. So I think the benefits are, there's multiple benefits. And as we get older, it's so important to prioritize our health. It doesn't necessarily, I like the gym, but some people might not be gym people. You could go on YouTube. My sister loves pop sugar. There's like pop sugar workouts or something. My sister loves that. You could go outside and go for a walk, right? There's so many things you could do um, that don't necessarily involve the gym if you're not like a gym person. 
but I would definitely say exercise and like writing. I love to write, so it's like a nice outlet for me and I've started to get back into like journaling. So journaling has been really just like fun for me. And I think just the the love of writing is still there, but you know, I'm like in the process of writing a book. So like I'm in the last stages and it's been, uh, I've been very stressed throughout the process. And so exercise and working out has really helped me. That's great. And also, I mean, you crank out content like nobody's business. Every week I'm like, hi, she can't. I, <laughs> I think because I love to write. Okay. So like writing is definitely like an outlet for me. And I feel like I've always loved to write since I was young. And I just like my ideal life is like me just writing, getting. But I would love to do like creative writing if I you know, if the world was perfect, I would be like a creative writer where I would just be writing things that I enjoyed. But yeah, writing for me, but um, for folks that aren't necessarily writers, there's still a lot of power in just like journaling. I just watched a TED talk yesterday about um, specifically like journaling. The speaker was talking about the power of how journaling helps us like formulate ideas. It's like the act of actually putting pen to paper versus like I I'll be quick to open up the notes of my phone. I'm not a big, like, let me actually sit down and write, but I've been like getting back into that. And it's really nice because it does help you like crystallize your ideas or if you have a problem, just journaling about it is so helpful. And you can kind of come sometimes to your own like solutions. Yeah, totally agree with that. Well, this has been amazing, Dr. Janice. So if you were to leave um, with one thought for our DEI leaders, uh, people leaders out there, um, what would you say to them? Um, first of all, I would say a quick shameless plug. I would say in October, get my book, Decentering Whiteness in the Workplace, because a lot of what we talked about, I mentioned, or I write about in the book um, regarding like what, what it will really take to create an equitable workplace. But I would say, aside from that shameless plug, plug making sure you're centering your employees and asking yourself in what ways are we prioritizing and centering our the needs of our most marginalized employees do we have an anonymous like survey tool or feedback tool so that employees can give feedback but they don't feel pressure because the feedback you know you know who's giving that feedback think of, think about what ways you're looking at feedback? Are you looking at what people are saying when they leave the company? So I would say, make sure you're prioritizing your most marginalized employees because when you prioritize them and put things in place that will help the most marginalized, everyone in your workplace will end up thriving and advancing because of that. That's amazing. Yeah. Dr. Dennis, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Robert. Should we shake or pound or? <laughs> <laughs> That was fantastic. Um, well, thank you for uh, joining us for the Voices of Inclusion podcast. We'll see you on the next one. Did you like this? Subscribe to the Voices of Inclusion podcast to hear secrets from incredible DEI professionals. Don't forget to go to matheson.io to connect with us so we can help you develop your DEI strategy no matter where you are on your journey. We'll catch you on the next episode.